Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk tech, computing, uh, the internet, uh, First Amendment rights tonight even as well. Um, this evening on the desk, we have uh, Mr. Dan Morganti. How are you, Dan? Yeah, uh, very well. How are you? Not too bad. Have you had an okay week in tech so far? Middling? Uh, yeah, um, just because of the lockdown, just been playing more video games than is probably healthy, but, you know, works for me. Oh, where, where, which worlds have you been exploring? Um, I've been playing Dead Cells, which is a roguelike platformer kind of game, um, which I played uh, maybe about a year ago, but uh, I'm getting back into it in a big way. Mm, yeah. Nice. Uh, also, Laura Summers. Laura, how are you? Hey, hey. I'm um, I'm good. I've I've had a sad uh, device dying week. My cats knocked my iPad off of the table while I was doing yoga in the morning a couple days ago, and it is dead as a doornail. <gasps> yeah, little shits. They were so proud of themselves. They were like, "Ha ha! <laughs> You're not paying attention to the device anymore. You're paying attention to me. This is what I wanted." Oh, uh, which which iPad was it? Which version? Uh, and about three year old iPad Pro. Mm. Oh, ouch. Yeah, I was not expecting to replace that machine for a while. Let's put it that way. Oh, man. And they don't even pay rent. Yeah, I know. Little fuzzy snot noses. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am also with you on the show tonight. I'm Warren Davies. Um, I, uh, yeah, have not had too bad a week. Um, just the, the usual gremlins. Um, and, yeah, not, not too many video chats and stuff like that. Just some um, some good lo-fi tech, which is, which is good. Um, but excited to talk about all types of technology on the show tonight. Um, while we're perhaps not quite as close as some of us would like to be right now physically in the, in the meat space and, and meeting possible romantic mates, we will be uh, again soon for, for those that have it on the mind. Um, Emily Brooks, former journalist and associate editor at Huffington Post AU, uh, has written a new piece on making special friends uh, today. Um, the first move has been described as a powerful social commentary and self-help guide for young women navigating the dating scene. Um, so it'd be interesting to have a chat with Emily uh, in a few minutes on the show. Um, also next week, um, a bit of a geek out, it's National Science Week. Uh, and there will be, uh, among uh, heaps of things uh, around the country, it was interesting. I was looking at the site, it was like National Science Week Victoria. It's like, surely everyone, lockdown's not quite that bad. Um, all around the country, we can have science. Um, so it is happening everywhere. Um, in Victoria, there's going to be a great forum and panel uh, in a few days' time, I think on Sunday, uh, as part of this. And it's about um, the kind of future Melbourne we want and the role of technology and science and uh, a variety of different disciplines in creating that. Um, as part of this, uh, Professor Elizabeth Croft, uh, Dean of the School of Engineering at Monash University, will be discussing socially aware robots um, and how they might become, uh, I guess, part of the, the social fabric uh, in Melbourne, uh, if we'd like that. And Elizabeth will join us on the show uh, a little bit later tonight as well, which is cool. But before then... Um, 
a bunch of news um, that we, we did want to um, bring to your attention. Um, one that we did spot, um, facial recognition uh, startup has mounted a, a First Amendment defence in the States. Um, Clearview AI, who'd probably not be a stranger to, to many of our listeners out there, um, has hired um, the flamboyantly named Floyd Abrams, um, a top lawyer to help fight uh, claims that selling its data to law enforcement agencies violates privacy laws. So, uh, Clearview AI have, have come up a few times, but um, they're famous for scraping billions of photos from the internet, uh, including from platforms like LinkedIn and Instagram and, and other uh, social platforms, um, and then selling this uh, database to, to law enforcement agencies, both in the States and in other places around the world. Um, so, yeah, obviously a very um, challenging space, um, and uh, I, I guess bringing out the big guns like Floyd Abrams is a definite sign of intent that um, they intend to win. Um, what do you folks think about this? Public information, um, it's out there in the public space, you know, a business theoretically has a right to aggregate it and, and on-sell it, or, or does it? Do we do, do people need to step in and, and uh, civil rights organisations need to draw a line and say, actually, well, you may think you can, um, we need to do something about this law. What do you guys think? Well, I've, I've, um, I know at least a couple businesses off the top of my head who have done a similar thing and scraped like publicly available data, but not necessarily had an API access to that data, not necessarily had sort of formal formal permission to use it. And I think like um, the interesting thing is like the the other businesses I could name like probably wouldn't necessarily make us feel super uncomfortable, but it's not completely you know legit either. Um, but in this case, we're talking about our faces and we're talking about a facial recognition tool that's like trying to make it possible for anyone in the world to be identified by their face. Um, and that's obviously not what we agreed to when we put our pictures up on Facebook um, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, however long it was that we were doing that. Um, mm. I don't know about you guys, but I don't put my face up anywhere now that I can avoid. Um, but yeah, so in my view, um, we have to think about the potential harms and the potential like you know, like the utility function here, like what is the what is the worst that can happen? And we can imagine lots of things that can go wrong. Um, and so in my view, like even if the argument about the public scraping of data isn't the strongest argument, the potential impact is bad enough that we have to find some kind of lever, some kind of skinny edge of the wedge to try and push back against this action. Um, but yeah, in my view, it's not so much about the scraping of the public the public data as it is about like the broader impact and, and potential for harm that this particular tool might have. Mm. I, I just find it crazy that they're using the first amendment, like surely the first amendment should work in the opposite way. Like this is my face, my first amendment rights apply to my face kind of thing. I don't get how they these companies are saying it's their right to, to do this. It just seems backwards to me. I will point out the uh, the juicy quote from Mr. Abrams, uh, 84, who said um, he'd not actually been able to see Clearview AI's app uh, in action because the pandemic had kept him from meeting with the company uh, and because he didn't own a smartphone. He said, uh, I'm learning the language, quote, unquote. I've never used the word spatial biometric algorithms until this phone call. Um, so at, at least Mr. Abrams is learning something too. But, um, yeah, I'm not going to say I'm going to uh, support, support that side. But, um, yeah, interesting. Laurie, you've got a, another story that's kind of um, similar to this. Yeah, well, there's been um, a couple of pieces of news uh, about facial recognition um, happening this past week. Um, so one that's come out of the UK 
is the Home Office has made a decision to drop an algorithm that they were using for visa applications. So that's for people who are outside um, the UK and want to come in, whether it's for work permits or, um, you know, temporary stays, long stays, whatever, like all those visa um, applications were being put through this algorithm. Um, and it was being robustly criticized as being extremely racist. Um, uh, one of the commentators, Foxglove, characterized it as a speedy boarding for white people. And like often is the case with these kinds of um, issues, like it's maybe a little bit more complex than that. And there may, there may be, um, you know, less acceptance of people of color, but um, for a mix of reasons, it may not just be based on their skin, um, the, the color of their skin per se, it may be um, that people of color are more likely to come from economically devastated areas, for instance. Um, but for whatever the reasons, they've accepted there's a problem, which is a really big win. Um, and what they've said that they're going to do is remove it from use and they're going to um, go away, redesign it, come back and try and have another version um, ready to go in about two or three months time. Um, so look, one to keep an eye on. I, th I certainly think um, anything that's pitched as like not really automation, we need to be suspicious of. They called it a streamlining system. Um, but if it was making automated decisions about who can get through to the next step of the application process, that's still essentially an automation, hey, in my view anyway. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of it's um it really is a a, a space that you would like um, uh, lawmakers to catch up on um, sooner rather than later. Um, I feel like like claiming the early ground um, makes it really hard to to kind of um, wind back some of these things. It's very concerning. Well, exactly. I mean, the the good news is that we are seeing something being wound back, and we are seeing them admit that there's a problem, and that's immediately an improvement over many other instances where people like essentially um, beat the drum for years in cases, um, refusing to accept there's a problem until there's such overwhelming evidence that they can't do it anymore. Mm. Um, Robo debt comes to mind, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have no knowledge of this thing. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, look, 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 it's and again, it's it's more subtle than just yes or no. Like one of the one of the problems that came out of this particular algorithm is people who were red flagged were then receiving intense scrutiny by home office officials. Um, they were approached with skepticism. It took longer to determine whether they would get their visa and they were much more likely to be refused. So not only were they just like being pushed through this low track, they were just having a really bad time. Um, and I think it's important to understand that like it's not just I get a yes or I get a no. It's like also the sort of tenor of my experience and whether or not that's contributing to like what I might already be experiencing, what other vulnerabilities, um, you know, the, the structural racism that's already in the universe, like what else, what, what am I contributing to and is that okay? Mm. Um, so yeah, look, I think certainly it's a, it's a big win for the um, advocates who are pushing against it and um, we'll cross our fingers that they come back with some really transparent um, visibility over the rules going into the next version. Some some new rules that are also interesting. Um, I guess a bit of a global news up tonight. Um, Dan, Uber and Lyft have um, been given some directions on on how they should treat employees. Is that right? Yeah, a uh, San Francisco judge uh, ordered Uber and Lyft to convert their drivers to employees after a prolonged and brazen battle to keep them as contractors. Um, the judge gave the ruling uh, a stay, meaning it won't go into effect for ten days, giving the companies the time to file appeals. But that's uh, the their legal right. Um, in May, though, a California State Attorney General 
uh, sued Uber and Lyft for worker misclassification. So in the ruling, the judge sided with the Attorney General and delivered an injunction forcing Lyft and Uber to comply with uh, the gig economy law that would convert many independent contractors to employees. Um, and in addition to the appeals, Uber and Lyft are backing uh, a proposition in the November election that would exempt their businesses from the gig economy law, which is, you know, the entire reason, they're almost entirely the reason the, the law was made in the first place. Um, and uh, unbelievably have said that their contractors don't want to be made into full-time employees, which uh, I'm not sure uh, who, they're, who they're talking to, which their contractors uh, are giving them that information, but uh, it seems like these laws are they're constricting on their um, unfair practices, which is uh, a good news for all the people driving for Uber and Lyft, and hopefully we see some stuff like that in Australia as well. There's um yeah, there's a good good stat there that um, Uber analysis suggested that um, the law could raise uh, rider prices by between twenty and forty percent in San Francisco and San Diego, and in other parts of California by up to a hundred percent, which you know pretty much pulls them back to taxis and other services. Um, there's a there's an interesting conversation between the judge and the company where the judge said it's probably a good time to have a think about your business plans right now during the pandemic because you know we're all kind of reassessing things and uh, Uber disagreed surprisingly. Yeah. Um, saying that state leaders should be focused on creating work, not trying to shut down an entire industry during a, a, an economic depression. Um, very kind of philosophical courtroom conversations there. Yeah. Mm. I think they poked the bear there a little bit, Warren. Like Uber has been coming under a lot of scrutiny for the the viability or not, depending on what side you sit on, of mm -hmm. their long-term business model, right? Like they've had so much capital investment and they've been loss leading for way too long. Yeah, and yeah. whether there's any possibility of them actually becoming a viable like black ink business is, you know, anyone's guess. Um, in fact, I read a really fun economics review of that a couple of weeks ago, which is, um, it's a long form. I won't talk to it now, but it's it's a fun one. And maybe we can tweet it out later if any economics geeks are listening who want to like hear someone have a real teardown of Uber's business model. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We are now joined uh, by uh, Emily Brooks, who is uh, author of The First Move, which is um, an interesting book we're going to dig into. Uh, Emily was the editor of Future Women, an organisation dedicated to the advancement of women. She was also very busy as associate editor of, uh, at the Huffington Post Australia and uh, working a few other um, news outlets as well. But now, uh, thankfully, doing great books. Um, Emily, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sending my love down to you all in Melbourne. I'm in Sydney. Uh, we appreciate that, feeling the love there. Um, Kind of the topic of our book, right? We're, we're going to talk a, a little bit about love and uh, how that works and, and how it can work. Um, yeah. I, I do have a question. Uh, on the inside of uh, certainly the digital version of the book, um, you have the uh, quote, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off from uh, yeah. Gloria Steinem. What, what does that mean in this context here? I'm, I'm interested to know. Well, I guess um, I wrote this book because I had a question that I needed to answer. And that question was whether successful women face a penalty in romance. So do men avoid dating women more educated, more ambitious, more successful than themselves? Um, and throughout my research, I discovered that historically, yes, women have suffered a huge 
datability penalty is what I call it. Um, but what we're beginning to see uh, over the last couple of decades um, is a really positive shift in men's attitudes and men's behaviour. Um, and so we are seeing men partner with women more successful than themselves now. Um, but that portion of men is smaller than uh, the portion of successful women out there. Uh, so that's kind of the fun, romantic tension that we get to sit with right now. So mm. it does piss a, a lot of women off when I tell them about this, um, but we're also seeing some really uh, positive uh, moves forward. On, on that, you do point out um, early on, uh, I think in your author's note, that um, this book's an exploration of heterosexual relationships and yeah. in many ways uh, same-sex relationships and, and the many other kinds of relationships uh, are showing the way. Uh, what are some examples here? What, what do you find interesting um, uh, outside of heterosexual relationships? Well, um, the interesting thing that I found in my research was that um, same-sex couples have some really uh, satisfied, happy relationships, particularly in terms of um, when we look at their household chores. So because they're often the same sex, same gender, there's not that gendered assum assumption that often occurs between men and women um, mm. in terms of who's going to do what around the house. So because there's not that assumption there, uh, they have to discuss it and talk about it and have uh, more conversations more regularly um, and that leads to happier relationships that's what the researchers have found so we do have a lot to learn from them um, yeah there has actually been some stuff around um, uh, the pandemic as well and how uh, um, it's actually increasing the um, uh, I, I guess the discrepancies there between how much housework um, uh, many men and many women um, are doing as well. Mm -hmm. So we're all, we're all at home more. Uh, we're certainly um, down here in Victoria as well. We're, we're at home quite yeah. a bit. Um, but you would think that that would actually uh, alleviate some of that, but um, not the case. But um, you also mentioned one of um, uh, Laura and my heroes uh, early on. Laura, are you curious about this one? Yeah, of course. Um, you you weave in Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or the notorious RBG, as we love to yeah. call her. Um, <laughs> I had month. to get her nickname in there. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, I mean, look, look, I've I've read about her. I've seen some of the docos on her, and obviously, I'm I'm very well aware of what she's done for women's rights um, in a legal sense. Um, I'm curious to know what it is about how she lived with her partner, with her husband, that you think is worth emulating um, from a romantic point of view or from a fairer partnership point of view? Like, what is it What is it from her life that you think is worth sharing in, in, in terms of this overall context of your book? Yeah, so um, the love that I kind of talk about um, and call for uh, is a love called teammate love, um, and that's a love based on... Um, passing the ball of opportunity back and forth between partners. And when we look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her history, um, you see a husband that uh, took the front seat in their lives for the first part of their lives, but then you see a man that took the back seat um, and looked after the children and allowed her career to thrive. Um, but you also saw a man that respected what she did so much 
that he thought it would be an outrage if she uh, didn't receive that position as a, as a US um, Supreme Court justice. Mm. Um, can you tell us more about teammate love? Like, how does that differentiate from like what we think of as romantic love? Or and maybe you can talk to the other stages that you touch on in the book. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was important to talk about marriage and love um, in in terms of history. And when we look back before the 18th century, the late 18th century, sorry, um, love actually had nothing to do with marriage. So marriage was invented to get in-laws. Um, so it was a political and economic move uh, uh, created by families, really, um, to expand their workforce or improve their political position. And gradually we've moved into an era, um, into more areas, eras where love will have more influence um, in people's partnerships. But what has kind of lagged behind is the really gendered roles that, that women and men have been uh, forced to conduct uh, through society. Um, but teammate love differs from soulmate love, um, which is the last part of love that I kind of talk about in the book. And I say that um, right now we're kind of sitting in a stage between soulmate love and teammate love. Um, but soulmate love... I would argue is based on personal respect and teammate love is based on personal and professional respect. So I think the era we've seen is men that are quite happy for their wives to have careers, but their wives still have to have two jobs. Um, and this era of love, teammate love, um, is an era where men will respect their wives' careers so much that they will be happy to take the back seat sometimes so that women don't have to have two jobs. So that's what I'm really calling for, for women to be less tired. Um, I feel like this, this book is... Uh, I'm, I'm part of this book because my partner's more successful than me uh, with her career currently. I mean, I'm uh, uh, on JobSeeker and she's just got a huge raise and everything like that, but... Um, well, like see, I'm, I'm, you're one of the good men that I talk about. Yeah. Well, it d doesn't worry me. She can buy me more stuff, I guess. I, I just, yeah. Well, but I see it as her her success is my success as well, like and yeah. vice versa. So that's just the way I see it. But um, there's also like an interesting concept later in the book, um, your emotional f off fund, uh, and the idea that we maybe have a surplus of uh, friends online. Um, can you explain that? Please. Yes. Do you know no one's asked me about this um, throughout the last two weeks? Um, Happy to be the first. Yeah. Um, look, I won't have the exact numbers on me, but I talk about Dunbar's number, um, and he was a sociologist, I believe. Um, but I felt very reassured when I came across this this figure, um, and basically... 150. Yeah. 150, thank you. Yeah. Um, you've looked at those pages more recently than I have. Um, but, yes, 150 is the number of uh, kind of friends, acquaintances we can have. But we really have a group of about five core friends and then another 15, which adds to our social group. So we have about 20 people that we can be close with. Um, and then beyond that, you kind of reach acquaintance territory. 
Um, and I think, yeah, particularly online, we have however many people following us on social media or on Facebook. And it does feel like, particularly if you're introverted, that it's a lot to keep up with. Um, so I'm an introvert and I found that number extremely reassuring do when I came across it. Do you see these uh, kinds of numbers, do they correlate to like online dating? Uh, I'm imagining that's easy to, uh, fairly easy to track with things like that. In terms of... Um, oh, like connections made, like is it similar to friends to partners? I imagine it's a smaller number but somewhat tracks similar. Just that would be my yeah, assumption. Yeah, um, and in terms of partners, uh, they do say with that number when you um, form a, a new relationship, that person, that romantic partner counts for one and a half people, which I found very interesting as well. They take up more than, more than one kind of person in your life. Is that from like <laughs> just being sense. so close to someone? Knowing, yeah. knowing more about them and the like? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I think it's also a time factor. You invest so much in that person and they invest so much in, in you. So it equates to, yeah, one and a half people. Um, there's an interesting note here about, um, I, I guess there's, there's so many kind of theories of people and time and, um, you know, how to optimize our lives. We talk a little bit about that uh, on this show. Mm. Um, just a note here from Laura about can we take a quantified self-approach to online dating? There's, I, I remember reading a, a theory not, not long ago where you could actually figure out the numbers and in the first third of your potential romantic partners, you should just ignore everybody. So have fun, <laughs> share some time, so what have you. In the second third, you should snag the best person that you can at the soonest possible time. That's the ideal time to choose. And then, you know, this is just a theory. Obviously, you know, in the, mm. the last third of people that you meet, you can certainly meet someone who's amazing. Um, but what are, what are your thoughts on that? Is there a, is there a formula? <laughs> are there kind of well, shortcuts guess, or tricks? I guess you? you have to know how long you're going to spend. Is that in a, in a session that you spend on an app or is that... Um, oh no! Over, over your life. So um, your this, life. this person's theory was in the first, um, yeah, say first ten or fifteen people that you bump into that you could possibly, yeah. um, you know, spend time with. Just ignore them. Have fun. Go to Greece. <laughs> do whatever you'd like well, to. And then in the next, basically. the next third, <laughs> take it very seriously. But um, yeah, I, I'm not against that. I feel like that kind of equates to your twenties the first 15 mm. people that you kind of mm. mess around with. Um, and then your 30s is when you start to take it more seriously. And I think um, what else you could factor in there too is that you start figuring out what you like and don't like and want and don't want. Um, so you get to know yourself better through the process. So I guess, yes, I do agree with that. Hmm. I, I, I'm also very curious about um, something that I've picked up on um, on um, just using a little bit more TikTok, which has just been a different yeah. thing this year. Um, the notion of people talking about body counts and how different the reaction it's been for men and women when you talk about your body count. Have you come across that at all? No. Um, oh. Body count in terms of what, uh, like how much they weigh? No, no, no. In terms of um, partners that you may have had. So. Oh, um, well, I think that's a deeply personal thing um, mm. and some people um, 
some people want to want to know their partner's body count, and other people don't. But also, I think um, our culture doesn't really support um, women having a high body count. So I imagine women would be less willing to share. Mm. Um, and that's just some gendered stereotypes that still exist and, and um, they're fading a little bit, um, but they're still there, they're still present. Mm. I mean, the interesting thing I'm seeing is people very young are talking about it in a way that I didn't talk about when I was quite young and people just owning it um, and mm. young young women and trans and all kinds of people just saying uh, this is what it is and you can deal with it because they've seen young boys talking about it um, yeah, it was just a weird kind of mm. dynamic. I'm very hopeful watching Gen Z come through in the younger generation. They're just very sure of themselves. But I also think um, with the rise in non-binary folk and um, and um, I just think there will be a bit of a deconstruction of, of gender and a, a lot of pressures that come with that will be lifted. So, yeah, I'm very, very hopeful and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what the next generation does. Well, it's been a yeah, fantastic uh, talk. I'm fascinated with online dating, even though I don't get to participate in it myself these days. <laughs> uh, and to be honest, I wasn't a big fan of it anyway. But uh, thanks so much for coming on, Emily. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, where can people get the book if they would like to get the book? Uh, you can buy the book online, um, anywhere you buy books, but go support your, your local bookstore if you can and if it's open and try to order online through them if they're not open, um, if their uh, physical bookstore isn't open. And the title of the book one more time? Uh, the First Move the by first Emily move. J. Brooks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're on the show with Laura, myself, Warren and Dan, and we're about to chat to Elizabeth Croft, the Dean of Engineering at Monash Uni, who's doing some incredibly cool work on socially aware robots. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hello, thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so yes, you are an expert on this specific space of robot engineering, which is called handoff, where people ask robots to do things and then robots tell us whether or not they can do them. And that sort of back and forth happens with commands and responses. Um, and it's a fascinating space. We're so excited to talk to you about it. Um, can you give us a little bit of a summary that's probably a bit more coherent than my attempt? <laughs> <laughs> Happy to. Um, so yeah, I, I work on how people and robot works to work together. And so whether it's in industrial spaces or whether it's public robots or whether it's robots in our home or in our offices, um, it's important that robots work well with people. We do see that um, more and more robots are, are coming into the workplace. They are cleaning our floors and vacuuming. They are, there are museum robots. If you, one day when we get to go to hotels, you may see a hotel robot. <laughs> uh, they may be delivering pe to people in quarantine right now. Um, but those robots are out in, in, in the environment right now. And what's important about 
the work that we're doing is how do we make it easy for people to use these robots? How do how do we allow you know John Q public to rock up to a robot and be able to interact with it in in a useful way? So if that robot is delivering your sandwiches, or if that robot is guiding you through a museum, or if that robot is um, doing something with you on an assembly line, how can you work together with that robot and understand what it's about to do, and it should understand what you're about to do so that you work together well? Mm -hmm. And while that sounds actually like quite obvious and intuitive, I'm guessing there's a lot of devil in the detail. Um, maybe to ground that for us, could you tell us a bit more about um, what can go wrong when that sort of communication breaks down or when that handoff doesn't quite go right? So handoff is a perfect example. So when we first started looking at actually what we call a human robot handover, um, one of the challenges is, well, how, when, when I give you something, when I hand you over something, there's a bit of a social contract that's going on there. I am responsible for um, making sure that the object that I'm handing to you gets to you safely. I'm holding on to it. So if the dropping happens, that's my fault. Your job is to take hold of that object and depending on how fast you pull that object away from me, that's how fast the handover happens. So I'm the giver, I'm responsible for safety, you're the receiver, you're responsible for the timing of the handover. And so we need to put that same social contract into a way a robot hands over an object to you. Otherwise, what you end up with is human-robot tug-of-war. And that usually does end up with something on the floor, which could be bad, especially you know, if it's a cup of coffee or something like that or something more valuable. Um, so really, we have to design, and what we've been doing is designing into the way that the controller behaves, measuring um, how much force the receiver is putting on the object so we can measure, are they taking the object? The robot can measure that. And using that to control the grip of the robot, how hard it holds onto the, onto the object. And so by just designing the controller around the social contract of Andover, we make it easy and intuitive. Anybody can take the object and we never have, have things being dropped anymore. We've tried this on lots of different examples, the handing over water bottles and cups and things like that, and it works really well. And it works really well for people who have never seen a robot before. And they can rock up to it, take an object, and it works very, very cleanly. The other thing that we've observed with uh, interaction is that body language and gestures and cues are very important in our own conversations, in our own interactions. They're also really important when people interact with robots. So if we take that handover example again, and I'm going to hand an object to you, and I could look at where I'm going to hand the object over. I could look at you as I'm handing the object, or I could be a teenager and I could look at the floor and just hand it over. <laughs> which, which of those ways would be most socially appropriate for, for the handover? Well, it turns out when we did this experiment with a whole bunch of naive people who had just rocked up to the university and were wanting to try out the robot, um, that if the robot looked at you 
while it was handing over the object to you. And now this is basically just the cameras on the robot flipping up and having a look at you. I mean, the robot, it's not human. <laughs> uh, so the robots, but it looks like it's looking at you. People love that. They felt that the robot was sincere in the handover. They felt it was engaging. When the robot looked at where it was handing the object over, people actually launched into the handover sooner because they knew the cue of where that object would, was going to be. And we measured um, with a light curtain their launch. So we measured their hand moving through this light curtain so we could see when they were launching. And we saw that the cue of looking at the handover location actually made people operate more efficiently. And the teenager handover just confused people. <laughs> I'm assuming that's looking elsewhere while sort of handing it off in yeah, a disdainful yeah, manner. Exactly. Yeah, I don't get it. So just to be clear, when we're talking about these kinds of um, processes that you're programming, are you are you doing fixed like kind of standard programming, or are we talking about machine learning that's trying to like improve and adapt as it goes along? So we're doing, a, you know, we're doing lots of different levels of programming. So absolutely, we're using machine learning. We're using adaptation because we know adaptation um, helps in an interaction. If I adapt to you and you adapt to me, there's synergy there. And so we do like to do things like learn um, about people's motions, learn about, we actually actually like to learn who they are because if the robot recognizes you and recognizes your, your face, then it can say, you know, hello, and I remember you and can remember things about you. So machine learning is important, but there's also parts of our interactions that are much, um, what can I say, much more behavioral and much more hardwired in, like that handover. So. We do some of this stuff we do as sort of like hardwire reflex behavior. And then on top of that, we layer the ad adaptation. So it's a bit of a mix of both. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really important when a robot's behaving because you want stuff that's really hard, rock solid, reliable, and behaves the same way every time because predictability in certain things is very important. But also adaptability is important as well. And it's it's about learning how to get that right um, that right place in between the more robotic behavior and the more adaptive behavior. Is there um is there some kind of consensus about it's harder to teach humans to be socially comfortable with robots, or is it harder to work the other way around? Like a, a, a team is coming from both ends, going, okay, we've we've worked out some. Um, they like faces. They don't like, you know, these um, Boston Dynamics kind of like uh, sort of Atlas. dogs walking across yeah, the yeah. 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 What's what's the kind of um, the bridge there between between well, the two? It's it's actually really fascinating because it's about the communities coming together. So the people that I work with are from psychology and sociology and anthropology, as well as from computer science and engineering, right? So and even people in, in law and ethics because. All of those parts are important to human-robot interaction, and so there's a really there's a real human piece in understanding what expectations are, how well people can adapt. We spend a lot of time just trying to understand what people can do, so that we can design robots to adapt for what people people can do and what people want and what people expect. So it's, it comes from both ends. There's also the technical requirements, you know, 
How well can we recognize with current um, cameras and other sensors? How well can we measure? How fast can we measure? How fast can we adapt? Um, and actually, but you know, then there's that, then we go back and we, we say, well, how much do we really need? Because if the robot is responding in a way that's way faster than a human can perceive, there's really no point, right? So it's really about um, understanding both sides and working together. So for me, I, you know, it's actually quite, quite fun because I end up working with people that uh, operate in domains that are really a lot, really far away from my own and learning so much from them. And um, I think when we work in that area and we work with robotics, we learn about a lot about people. I have to ask, could you maybe relay one of the strangest conversations? Like, I feel we're all having strange conversations and, and almost relearning how to kind of interact with the humans in our little metal boxes. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear something where people are just coming from different planets on something, if you could. Uh, oh, different planets on something. Uh, well, that's a, I, I'm, I'm thinking... About that, you know, the classic story is kind of that that kind of like six pick um, graphic of people being asked to draw a, a chair, and product does this, and design yeah, does yeah, this, yeah. and engineering okay. does that, and oh yeah, because I, I this is really interesting. You know, when I first started working in robotics, I um, I worked in industrial robotics, so for me, a robot was always um, a robotic arm. Right. You know, it was and that for me in my world, that was a robot. And so I'd be talking to people about, you know, robotics. Yeah, exactly. The robotic arm and and that. But for people that I'd be talking to in other disciplines, they would be thinking R2, R2D2 or maybe C3PO. Right. So their their vision of a robotic mine was kind of weird. Right. Mine's the disembodied single arm, kind of like something from the Adams family, like, thing, you know, um, and that was my vision of robotics because it I was very focused on industrial automation and the assembly line. It was all robotic arms and they were doing welding and that was my thing. And so I'm having conversations with people who are saying, no, no, no. When it moves around and I'm going, well, it doesn't like it, it stays on the table because it's clamped down to the table. So those were some early conversations where I went, oh yeah, 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 R2D2, right. That's your vision. And and quite frankly, you know, as we've developed and we've, you know, now we have um big dog and the small dog and you know Atlas and we've got all these roaming robots, we have a bunch of fetch robots that can go and run around and they do have a disembodied arm like thing that goes around and can get things. So it's <laughs> Oh, so you, you were know, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, being an engineer, I was very focused on just the the particular area and particular application. So it's been really good to work with uh, with folks on on that. Um, and yeah, just things like um, working with people. A lot of my work has been trying to you know measure um, physiological responses to robots and, you know, fear, surprise, all of those things and learning about how people in other research communities do that by measuring, you know, you can measure people's heart rate and skin conductance and all of that stuff and then use that. Um, yeah, it's been just really interesting to bring in all of these different, different disciplines and see how you can use it. It's fascinating. 
Oh, you go, Laura. Oh, no, I was just going to say we interviewed a startup working on um, beer, beer preference by attempting to measure your physiological response to it using... Um, uh, I think it was LiDAR to skin temperature, yeah, skin temperature and, yeah. and like pupil dilation, um, which was a fascinating idea. Um, I, I know that we need to wrap up, but I want to, I want to ask one more quick question because you've made a few fun predictions about how far off robots in the home are. So I'm curious to know if you still think they're coming soon. I think at some point you said they were about 10 years off. Um, I really want a, a robot butler or a robot laundry folding bot. Um, when is it coming to save my save my butt? Well, well, you know, Roomba's already there, yeah. of course. And the cats of the world rejoice. Roomba <laughs> is there, and you can, and and that is there. Um, there are actually um, laundry ro folding robots. They're mainly, you know, and they are coming, but typically they're in industry because they're still expensive, right? So they're still there. Um, you know, I, whether the robot butler, uh, you know, the, I think the challenge is, um, the challenges are still batteries. Batteries are still a big issue because you got to, you know, does the robot go and plug itself in, right? Well, I guess it can just go stand on its charging station for a while. Um, the, you know, the machine learning and the learning to identify objects in your home is actually really, you know, moving quite far advanced. We still have to catch up on... Um, a lot of the um, ability to, to move and to, to be agile inexpensively, right? Like, I would love one of the Boston Dynamic Robots, but the price tag! <laughs> so it's still, it's still, like, batteries are big, um, computation's already there, internet's already there, but the, the fine mechanics and being able to produce that quickly. I think with more 3D printing, more fast um, manufacturing methods, that is going to come. But honestly, you can get a, a you know, you can get a vacuum cleaning robot. It is in your home. I was right. This is this is incredibly fascinating. Um, I can't wait until we're all living in the Jetsons with our own robots. Um, uh, Elizabeth Croft, uh, Dean of Engineering at Monash Uni, you've got a talk coming up as well, I believe. Absolutely. Um, so I'd love to invite everybody to come and join us on Sunday, August uh, 23rd, when we're going to be part of the Possible Impossibles Forum, um, which is uh, part of the, it's going to be on the Victorian <coughs> Parliament and the Royal Society of Victoria. So it's between 4 and 5 p.m. And you can tune in and join us there. There's going to be some really interesting people. Uh, Dr. Kritzai Kanhutu is an infectious diseases physician. Um, so he'll, I'm sure he'll have a lot to say about um, uh, things that we're thinking about right now. And also Professor uh, Julie Monden, who is the head of marine sciences at Deakin, talking about the impact of human-generated waste on marine organisms and habitats. And Dr. Gail Illies, senior lecturer in physics, a leading at RMIT, a leading expert on spaceflight and exploration, and a former astronaut trainee in the European Space Agency. Awesome. Come and join us. Uh, thanks so much, Elizabeth, for that fantastic chat and also your enthusiasm. You, that was amazing. Thanks so much. Hey, you're listening to Bud Into It on Triple R with Laura, Dan, and Warren. Just one or two things that we wanted to point your way. Um, Laura, post work city, is that something that you're following along? 
It is. Oh, look, I, I saw this coming up on LinkedIn and it just sounded so fun. It's for people who want to help imagine a post-work city. Like what, what will it be like when we don't need to work anymore to sustain ourselves and we can spend all of our time making, creating, imagining, learning. Um, and that, that seems like a poetry for the soul right now for me anyway. So I was, I was very into that vision and I thought that sounded like a really fun event for anyone's got a little bit of creative or technical juice to offer. Um, so yes, if you want to check that out, just hop on to postwork.city and you can see the details and um, maybe think about popping something into the exhibition. Yeah, I kind of feel like there's a lot of stranded assets out there, car parks, um, you know, storage buildings, office office spaces for sure. Um, I, I also wanted to point out one for uh, National Science Week um, uh, coming up uh, starting uh, next week. Um, Future Earth is a, a live stream conversation uh, where technology meets the everyday. It's on Tuesday, the 18th of August next week uh, between 6 and 7. Um, we'll post some links to that. Um, thanks very much to our guests, uh, Emily and Elizabeth. Thanks for being an awesome audience. But until we'll be back next week, have a great night. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 